Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, In Squash Podcast. Today is Ep 15, and uh, we're delighted to have on the podcast uh, one of the two uh, faces of Squash TV, a uh, great player uh, himself back in uh, back in the day. He reached world number four, British national champion uh, in 1999, had some great wins over his career, could have potentially made it to the top, had a few bad breaks along the way. Uh, we went through all of that on today's podcast. Um, some great anecdotes there, some uh, some stories that, that I'm sure everyone's going to enjoy. And, uh, you know, we dropped a few uh, Facebook friend uh, uh, mentions on the podcast, including the guys, a uh, couple of my favorite guys from, uh, from the Squash Stories podcast. Uh, community on Facebook. Uh, they got a shout out from uh, from today's guest. None other than Paul Johnson PJ was on the uh, podcast today and he did not disappoint. Um, it was great chatting with him uh, about his career, about squash, the future of squash, the future of squash TV, um, so many topics that we got into. And I know you're going to enjoy it. I certainly did. Um, and also uh, his partner, Joey uh, Barrington, and uh, uh, the legend uh, Jonah Barrington. Some great anecdotes there about uh, training uh, together with Jonah uh, back in, uh, I think it was Glastonbury, where, they, where Jonah lived. And uh, um, PJ used to uh, train with him quite regularly. And uh, some great ghosting uh, technique stories there. So we're going to get uh, going to get to hear that, uh, along with uh, some other great stuff from PJ on today's podcast. And how about the uh, the ending to the Grasshopper Open? Well, I'm not sure if we all saw that coming, but uh, some promising stuff from uh, early on from from Gregory Galche, who was on uh, the podcast uh, a few episodes back, uh, just before he got injured, but. Um, you could see in the match against Ramy, he wasn't uh, entirely moving. Uh, obviously, moving the way he's uh, the way he would like to be moving, but uh, Ramy was firing on all cylinders, and uh, you could see that uh, he was playing at the level, uh, at the world-class level, that puts him uh, a step above everyone else when he's healthy. In the final, it was just unbelievable. Um, so that that was great to see the the grasshopper open. Now the the big question is obviously, uh, will he sustain that level of play through uh, uh, consistently over the next few months? If he does, then um, there's no stopping him from getting back uh, uh, to number one. But uh, that remains to be a big question. Obviously, uh, the wear and tear of the tour, playing uh, tournaments one after another, long matches one after another. Uh, that's going to uh, test his uh, previous injury and his uh, his fitness. So let's see uh, how that goes, and we hope it goes well because uh, you know when he plays like that, there's nothing quite like it uh, uh, in terms of the squash. So uh, congratulations to to Rami on his win at the Grasshopper Open, and let's hope uh, let's hope he's healthy and uh, continues playing at that level going forward. Um, Okay, everybody, uh, so episode 15 today, great, great uh, episode with uh, Paul Johnson. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, uh, well, welcome to the uh, In Squash podcast. Uh, this is episode uh, 15, and today uh, we're delighted to have on, uh, on the show uh, Paul Johnson, uh, PJ, otherwise uh, affectionately known as PJ, former world number one British national champion, uh, two-time Commonwealth uh, Games gold medalist, uh, currently uh, one of the two uh, faces of Squash TV, and a uh, Hall of Fame member of the London Youth, uh, what is it, the London Youth Games Hall of Fame. Is that right? Correct. That's correct, yeah. I'll just have to correct you on a couple of those stats, Jerry, because as, as, as good as you make me sound there, um, I, was, I was never world number one. I actually got to world, world number, number four. four. World uh, number four. Didn't world I, did world, I say world listen, number it, one? You did, and I'd love to take it. But I just, <laughs> you know, I just, it's just world number four right here. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, okay. Uh, yeah. okay. Well, I, I got ahead but, of uh, But anyway, yes. But we okay. do have the right person. That is me. Yeah, that is you. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, well may, may, you, you could have made it to number one. You had a couple of bad breaks along the way. But uh, 
That's very true. That's very true. Some still sting to this very day, but um, you know, we may or may not go there. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Again, thanks for coming on to the podcast, uh, PJ. And uh, you know, no first of all, just let me say what a great job uh, you and the, and the guys at the you and Joey and the rest of the crew at Squash TV have done. Uh, it's just such a, a great uh, asset to the game in, in so many ways. So. Uh, just want to say that's very much appreciated very much appreciated as you can tell it's a massive team effort there and the guys all do a, a sterling job that the passion amongst the crew is um pretty apparent to see uh, everyone is if they weren't into squash previously they've soon become uh, massive lovers of the game and, and it makes their job all the more enjoyable so they're a great team absolutely now you you find uh, you're, you're calling new york city your home these days I do. Uh, well, I wouldn't ever call New York City home for me. London, uh, South East London, um, the sort of Greenwich area uh, was where I was born and raised. And that is where I'll always call home, okay. uh, especially if my mother listens to this podcast. She'll kill me if I ever call <laughs> New York home. But um, yeah. no, this uh, New York has been a hub of mine for the last uh, 10 years now. My goodness, okay. that's flying by. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great squash hub. It's a, a lot of activity taking place over here amongst the... Uh, the, the high schools and the junior schools trying to get young players on this roster and trying to get them into some of the Ivy League schools and colleges over here. It's become a massive part of the recruitment process. If players can excel not only academically, but in a squash field as well, it gives them a much better chance of getting into school. So that's the main reason that I'm, uh, I'm based over here. So as much as I love New York, um, I also spent eight years in Boston. Uh, for okay. me, the United States will never truly be my home, Kerry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, well, you don't have a Boston or a New York accent anyway, so. <laughs> that's good. Uh, but yeah, so are you uh, aside from squash tv obviously you, you it sounds like you're doing a little bit of uh, coaching in fact i noticed on uh, alistair walker's uh, profile page he had you listed as one of his uh, coaches is that uh, am i correct there that's that's correct yeah i um i first came over here in 2006 uh, i was working in and around the greenwich connecticut area not really affiliated with a club at the time. I was working privately with uh, Chris Walker, who a lot of the squash fans will be familiar with. Chris Walker and I worked for a family in the in that Greenwich area where they had two daughters that played. And as, as crazy as this may sound to some, but one of the coaches was kind of specialised in working with one of the daughters, and I was working uh, with uh, with the other. So, kind of a very unique setting that. Uh, they sometimes uh, they sometimes have over here in the United States, but it developed from there. I, I very quickly grew to enjoy my time here in the U.S. I felt that there was a need for some so-called elite coaching, yeah. and was very fortunate to then meet some very nice families along the way, and uh, that then sent me up into the Boston region. Uh, there was a very nice family up there, and we used to base ourselves out of the tennis and racket club of boston this family had five children four played squash and that became a predominant part of my work and and it's just an involvement since uh, since then really and now i've been traveling and commuting my time between the boston and new york areas i'm still primarily based uh, out of the tennis and racket club of boston but i do travel down to new york on occasion and and do some work there as well so yeah. Um, yeah, it's been great. It's, it's lovely developing relationships with these kids, watching them progress through the junior ranks into college, and, and some have even moved on further, playing uh, post uh, post college, which is great. And also get to, as you say, there work with Alistair Walker. That for me is a, a very enjoyable part of my job because it reminds me of kind of the the very elite side of the game and takes you back to your kind of your playing days and and an appreciation of what those guys have to go through to try and make it work on the world on the world tour so yeah absolutely it's a bit of a mix of everything but it's great yeah and the uh i was going to say that uh when especially on the women's side anyways uh, uh, truly uh, it's mm -hmm. a reflection of perhaps uh the the level of coaching that now exists in the u.s you've got uh, amanda sobe obviously uh, playing uh, at a very high level, and Olivia uh, Blatchford is that I think Blatchford, and Blatchford, a yeah, other, correct. Uh, young ladies as well. It's brilliant to see that, that Amanda's kind of uh, carrying the flag at the moment for U.S. squash, especially given the fact that she was out for a year with her horrendous Achilles tendon injury. You've got Olivia Blatchford coming through. There's a few younger players that hopefully do look to go down the professional route with the influx of 
um, shall we say, more elite coaches. The standard in America has dramatically improved in the last 10 to 15 years, I think. Yeah. And the ladies now, uh, they'll start to, within a few years, challenging for kind of the world top four, top five spots in the team championships, I think. Oh, um, and that's all being, uh, and, you know, full credit to Amanda. She's done this off of the back of four years at Harvard University to, to hold down a, um, a, a full-time education and still maintain the level that she has, for me, is truly remarkable. The yeah. the commitment and dedication Look that it takes that, uh, on top of your... Sorry, yeah. On top of... Yeah, uh, the, the commitment and dedication that it takes on top of your school workload, uh, it's very, very tough. I can I can adhere to that. And, and what she's done is brilliant. It's great to see her back playing uh, it's sort of top 10 level again. Um, it would be nice to see her younger sister, Sabrina, come through as well. Another extremely talented uh, young lady. And if she suddenly makes that decision and dedicates herself to the game, for me, I, there's no doubt that she can become a top 10 player either. Absolutely. And then you have, uh, you have another uh, example of that as well on the men's side. Uh, uh, Ali Farag, obviously, uh, coming from Harvard cool. and, uh, you know, reaching, you know, he's, he's banging on the door of uh, world number one almost now. Uh, and he, he I think he did an, an engineering degree at Harvard, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that is also correct. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, there were a few kind of rumors previously that it wasn't possible for somebody to have a, an educator or go into full-time education and, and then continue to play squash at an extremely high level. But a couple of players that I that did that in my era, um, Thierry Linku was one that stood out. I think he went on to get a degree while he was playing. This was slightly earlier on in his career. Yeah. And, uh, and it obviously didn't hinder him. World, world champion, world number one and a great ambassador for the sport. He kind of reignited the French uh, squash Absolutely. Kind of, uh, yeah, impact. Look at French squash now. Yeah. It's just uh, on uh, men's and women's uh, a lot of uh, talent there. Sure, and that's all, that's all catapulted off the back of, uh, of Linku, I think. Yeah. Um, so he was one of the first to come through. I seem to remember. I think Peter Nickel also did some higher education stuff, um, and, and obviously it didn't hinder him either. But, for, but like, uh, so for him to him to go on and uh, to achieve what Peter did uh, after some some extra schooling as well was was also very impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I just uh, if you don't mind, PJ, can, uh, I'd like to take a look back at uh, at your illustrious uh, career because as I as I mentioned uh, at the uh, outset of the interview, you reached uh, world number four, uh, British national yeah. champion, two gold medals. Um, I mean, taking a look back at your your career, which uh, I mean, you played during the era of uh, obviously Peter Nickel. You you were around a little bit before that, I think, with Rodney Isles, cool. uh, also with yeah. John Jonathan Power, John White, Simon Park, uh, 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 an era <laughs> of squash that was fantastic uh, uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, you had some great results. Um, what were uh, some of your proudest uh, moments uh, over the years? Oh, that's a very good question. So my proudest moments, um, I think, as I reflect back, one of my proudest moments was being selected to represent my country, to play for England. Um, I think getting a phone call from the World Team Championships, right? Well, this was just to represent England in the European Championships at the time. Um, uh, It was always a target of mine as a, as a young player, um, but to finally get the the call from the from the head coach at the time, it was a guy called Stuart Courtney. We're, we're still uh, lifelong friends to this day. It was a defining moment for me, really. It was yeah. something that really I'd, I'd set that target as a young kid, and to finally achieve that goal, it made all of that work early on seem worthwhile. Um, that was. That was probably the very first kind of breakthrough that I remember. How old um, were you uh, at that time? I think I was 20, 23 years of age at the time. Right. I was quite a late developer, actually, Jerry, for me uh, to make it into that American team. And it was something that um, at times you, you felt wasn't really going to happen. So when I got the call up, uh, it, was, it was a massive relief. And that kind of catapulted me on from there, to yeah. be honest. Uh, to it was a real confidence booster yeah you had some i mean you had some very good results like you said later on in, in your career i mean uh you won the the british nationals in 1999 
uh, in an Correct. epic, uh, <laughs> epic match against Simon Park. Uh, let me read you the scores. I'm sure you remember them. Uh, 15-5, 15-8. Then we go to the fourth game I'm going to ask you about in a second. 1-15. <laughs> and, and then you managed to uh, uh, recover 15-7. What happened in that fifth game, and, uh, or fourth game, and how did you uh, – If you, I'm sure you remember I, it like it was yesterday. And, and I, I remember it vividly. I remember how did you recover? Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd love to uh, – to tell you that I was, it was tactical, Jerry. I was, I was taking a tactical <laughs> breather, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in all fairness, I've done that I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> it was against Simon Park. Simon Park. I remember watching Simon Park as a junior, and I played him once in the Swiss Open at the under sixteen level. Simon Park beat me nine love, nine love, nine one. So right. he was always a player that I held in very high regard and looked up to, even as a when I kind of encountered my career as a professional. So I played, I was playing Peter in the, the final of the national championships. Peter and I had had an hour and 53 minute battle the year before, uh, which Peter, oh, sorry, Simon beat me in, in five in that one. He then went on to beat Mark Challen, a three love in the final. How he did that, I'm not quite sure. Right. So anyway, we're, we're, we're battling it out in the final at the, the 1999 British uh, national championships. Um, but both players were going back and forth through stages of kind of focus. In late stages of the tournament, it's very hard to maintain that level and that quality. And uh, Peter, uh, sorry, Simon just came out at the beginning of the fourth game and he, he stepped it up a gear and he just went on a complete rampage. He had the ability to do this, Simon. Oh, he yeah. got really fired up and, and angry and aggressive. Yeah. It, and I just found him unplayable. It was... Um, yeah, he had quite a dynamic was, game. Uh, he could do... Very, very. Yeah. Very, uh, and it was, and, and I, to be honest, I didn't have an answer. But I, I was. This was at a stage when I was really in control of my mental aspect of the game. So I came off in between games. I wasn't flustered. I wasn't panicked. I still felt that I had some energy in the tank. Um, and I came out at the beginning of the fifth game. I settled down uh, quite nicely. Got in. Got into a good rhythm. Made made uh, extended a few of the rallies earlier. And I saw Simon starting to fatigue a little bit. And Simon still talks about this decision today. The, the central referee at the time was a chap called Dean Clayton. Again, another chap that I, I'm very fond of and I see him a, a, a lot around tour refereeing at plenty of the events. And um, I was awarded a stroke, I think at about 8-6 in the fifth. That took me to 9-6. And right. Simon never really recovered from that incident. And He felt he was hard uh, done by him. Extremely hard done by, yes. I mean, uh, what uh, did, you, did you feel it was uh, the right call or...? Uh, it's looking back, I mean, I had a pretty big swing at the best of times, Jerry, but uh, <laughs> if, if, if you compare it to, to some of the refereeing that we're seeing uh, in the modern game today, I, don't, I felt that it was the right decision. Um, it's always one of those where certain situations, both players are going to feel they're hard done by or one, one's going to favour a decision and the other's not going to like it. And they, you go through many of those throughout a match. So it, when you balance it out over the course of the game, it was probably 50-50 either way. It just happened at a time that probably stands out the most for Simon and, and was probably right. quite a bit to peel for him to swallow. But um, that's, that's just the way the game goes. Yeah, no, exactly. And um, then there was, I guess, it, maybe you, don't, you won't want me to bring this up, I, I'm not sure, but in the, <laughs> the 1997 uh, British Open match, the, uh, the infamous uh, handshake, yep. walk off the court, and then you're told to go back onto the court after you felt uh, yeah. you, you had won the match. Now, uh, can you fill in a few details there? What, um, what actually happened? I'll do my best. Um, it was the first round of the British Open, and as soon as the draw came out, I was playing Peter Nickel in the first round, and I had already had a very good record against Peter Nickel. I'd actually beaten him the year previously, three games to two. Okay. And that sent Peter out of the draw. And so I've got him again first round. I was always a little bit of a bogey player for Peter. Um, yeah, well, uh, what, um, what, uh, why do you think that was? I mean, he, I mean, obviously, I've seen you play. Uh, uh, I remember watching you in the Hong Kong Open uh, when Jonathan Power beat Peter. I think it was 97 or 98. Yeah. It lost to... Yep. To Peter in a really, really great match in the semi-final. I think it 17, was 17-16 in the fifth. That was yeah. Jerry. I, I remember. I was 13-9 <laughs> up in that. But, yeah. but thanks yeah, for bringing yeah. that up as well. You know, <laughs> yeah, Jonathan Barrington did the commentary on that. One. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, uh, yeah, so you were obviously very, very fit. 
I think. It was my movement was probably my biggest attribute. Um, and that, that combined with the fact that I had, I had the ability to, to use my speed. And this was a defining part in my career as well. When I finally realized that the speed that I'd been blessed with could actually be used as a weapon to attack, that was when my career kind of transformed and I became a much more kind of attacking player. Right. And that was something that Peter didn't particularly like, I don't think. He, he had a few players, bogey players over the years. I remember Davide Bianchetti from Italy was a, a player that Peter always struggled with. Peter was massively ranked, uh, sorry, high, so so much higher ranked than the Bianchetti at the time. Yeah. Um, but it, but Davide's style of play always just seemed to upset the rhythm of Peter. And I think that my game had a little bit of the same effect on Peter, whether it was because we were both left-handed I'm not quite sure. I always enjoyed play, p- playing Peter. Super, super fierce, but super fair. Oh, yeah. Great guy on and off the court and, and, a, and a real ambassador for the game. And it was, as soon as the draw came out, I remember speaking to my coach at the time, David Pearson. I, I felt that I was a better player than the year previous and, and I was in a really, you know, really good frame of mind going into that first round. First two games, I felt as I, I took Peter apart, it was I had a two-love lead. The third game started to get quite close as Peter, uh, Peter's physical ability was, um, or sorry, his, his fitness levels were a lot higher than mine. And right. I think we were 14-13 up in the third. And I played, I can still remember the rally, I played uh, a backhand boast, taking Peter into the front left-hand corner Peter played a cross court back to the same corner. I've gone to attempt to try and straighten the ball, but it was one of those kind of really lucky shots off the side of the frame. It spun up, hit the side wall, span into the middle, two bounces, end of, end of the game match, over. end of the game. So yeah. game over, job done. So Peter and I round about the, the service box area, shook hands, you know, well played and whatever it was. Both walked off of the court. And as we've walked off of the court, Neil Harvey, who was Peter Nichols' coach at the time, was basically in uh, Roy Gingell, who was the central referee at the time, in Roy Gingell's face, telling Roy that my shot was a double bounce or oh. a double pickup. Okay, yeah. Roy was, really, Roy was very inexperienced at the time. And Roy and I laugh and joke about it now, although, although it took me five years to actually speak to him. I was, I was livid. Um, he, he said that he got completely overwhelmed by the occasion and sent, sent both of us back on court. I'm literally ready to pick my bag up and walk yeah. off to the showers. Oh, Delighted sure? with my 3 love victory. Yeah. yeah, And wondering who I've got in the next round. And then Roy Gingell saying, please get back on court. Um, your ball was down, Mr. Johnson. Hand out 14-0. So we didn't even play that ball off of the back of it. Jeez. Went back on court. So had, um, had he called it? Had he called the match already? Oh, you shook hands, so he must have called the match. We, we shook we shook hands. Well, yeah. it, yeah, yeah, he's, you know, it was done and dusted. And Roy right. Ginger didn't actually get, get the result out, as they call the result now. You know, game of match to Johnson, three love. Um, right. he, didn't, he hadn't actually said that part. It was basically Neil Harvey interfering. Okay. <laughs> and, and both players went back on. 14 all, we played a rally. I called set one because it was up to 17 at the time. Uh, it was up to, Sorry, it was set one or set three. I called set one. Set I hit one. a forehand kill, in, forehand kill into the tin in the front left-hand corner. I do not remember the next two games. My head was in a complete spin. I jumped in the car in all my sweaty kit and roared down the M4 straight home to London in about an hour and 40 minutes, breaking every speed. <laughs> yeah. I was lucky yeah. I didn't get stopped by the police because I was I was absolutely devastated. Yeah. And that was very hard because that year Peter Nickel actually got to the final and lost to Janshir in five, I think it was. Right. Well, that was um, uh, that was a very tough that was a tough week. Yeah, that's I mean squash was great back then and you were you were right there with the best in the world. So um Thank you. Yeah, tough yeah. Tough, uh, tough match. And I guess you had a absolutely you had a tough uh, end to your career, if I'm not mistaken. You you were sort of forced Correct. to retire. Is that due to injury? Yeah. Um, yeah. It was. It was uh, interesting story, actually. It was our second time around for the Commonwealth Games in 2002. And I'd just come off the back of a, a very intense training week in Glastonbury with the great Jonah Barrington. Right. And he'd been putting me through my paces down there. Right. And I remember driving back in the car 
I was on my way back from Glastonbury. We're heading up to Birmingham for a holding camp where Team England were going to get together for some preparations before the Commonwealth Games in Manchester. And I remember sitting in the car um, and my, my lower back just felt a little bit tight and a little bit stiff. And I just thought it was because of the workload that I'd uh, had through working with Jonah. Turned up in Birmingham. I was, I was the fittest and the strongest I'd ever felt. Even though my ranking at the time, Jerry, had dropped down to number eight, right. I still felt I had, it, this was kind of a, a last, I was 29 years of age at the time. And I felt that this was a kind of a big a last push for me just yeah. to see where I can get to before I do look to retire. And turned up at the squad. I beat. I was beating Peter Nickel in practice. I was beating Lee Beachill in practice. Uh, felt really strong, really quick, really sharp. And I was playing a practice game against Mark Challoner, who was coincidentally my doubles, doubles partner. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And Mark played a forehand boast. He's right-handed forehand boast. Put, took me into the front left-hand corner. Ball was very low. As I've gone in to lift the ball for a cross-court lob, as I moved out and straightened up to move back to the tee, I felt a slight twinge in my back. Yeah. Carried on playing for two or three rallies, and then all of a sudden, the back just went into complete spasm, completely locked up, um, crippled on the floor, uh, hoping that this wasn't too serious. Right. They ended up getting me to Manchester. I was on the treatment table for about six hours a day. They managed to get me in some sort of condition and state to play uh, with anti-inflammatories and stretching and some rehab exercises. And basically went for an MRI after the, uh, after the Commonwealth Games. And they said that you've got a herniated disc, uh, L4 and L5. Sure. Basically, the easiest way to explain this is between your vertebrae, you have uh, discs which are like jam donuts. They have a fluid inside them. And through the wear and tear of the years of, of repetitive movement and playing squash, there was some kind of fluid that was leaking out from, from the discs. And this was putting then pressure on the nervous system and the, and the spine. Um, went into rehab for about six months of intense um, kind of uh, treatments for, for exercises or exercises to access and activate the lower back, strengthen up the area. Yeah. Felt fine. Turned up in Hong Kong about a month later, uh, but six weeks later, sorry, played Jonathan Power in the first round. One game all, halfway through the third game, went in exactly the same movement and the, and the injury happened again. Uh, and as soon as it went again, I just, it was there and then that I realised that uh, this is time to, time to quit. And uh, it was uh, a very, very tough way to, to finish out the career. Very tough. Yes. Particularly given, I mean, given you were, obviously you were, you mentioned you were playing so well and for that just to, yep. yeah. Uh, yeah. It's also one of those things where as a, as, as a player, Jerry, you never really uh, look at your career post, post playing. And, and that's why the PSA are now doing a very good job, but there's some schemes and, and they're developing these um, systems whereby players can move into life after squash because all the time you're competing, training, playing, you never re you're so focused and dedicated on the job in hand you're not looking outside of that and and if players aren't prepared it, it can come as a very big uh, a big shock and a big test yeah so it's, uh, well, the I know, things I are being put in uh, place now to, to aid that was it in the, at the windy city i think it was at the windy city open i noticed there was an initiative with uh, it might have been columbia university where a lot of the Correct. players were in there speaking with uh, with professors on uh, and other and maybe other uh, like-minded athletes on uh, how to what to do post retirement. Yeah, uh, were you in, was yeah, the, yeah. the squash or PSA involved in that initiative? Uh, PSA were definitely involved. Yes, um, yeah. I don't know specifics and details, but uh, they, they there were certainly some tour players that went along to listen to and, and to get some advice and they're looking at you know kind of um, courses and things that they can start to get involved in all the time that they're still competing that aren't too taxing and too demanding just, yeah. to, just to give them a bit of an idea of, of life outside of squash because um, some you know it's it, when you've been doing it for so many years and it's all you've known all of a sudden that's not there anymore it's uh, it, it's, it's quite a daunting prospect for a lot of people that's uh, that's great that uh, that that's being looked into now. I think in a lot of the other high-profile sports, uh, obviously the players who don't have the 
the wherewithal to go in the right direction, you end up hearing about them, but the ones who do do really well. So, and they, they've been through programs that were set up by the high profile uh, sports like uh, football or American basketball and things like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, let's talk a a little bit about the the current uh, program pro game PJ. Um, now, yep. uh, one one thing uh, you mentioned, I, I noticed recently. Uh, this isn't actually a current uh, question, but you re- you mentioned recently that if you could pair uh, two players from any era, it would be uh, and and have a match. It would be uh, you'd like to see Rami versus Janser. Now, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> with that. Uh, personally, as talented uh, as I think Rami is, uh, he's just incredible. It's when he was in his prime, I, yeah. I don't think anyone other than Janser could beat him. What do you? How do you see that match going? I again, that's it is it's one of those questions, isn't it? That when you look at certain players that stand out over a, a period of time that have, have have had such a major impact on the game, and at their best, how good they really were. The, the yeah. two players for me that, that jump out are exactly as you say. There, you got Rami and, and Janshir. Um, I think you have to look at you have to look at records, and I think if you look at just Janshir, the way that he adapted and um, kind of evolved his game, depending on the era that he was in, was the most impressive that I've ever seen. I mean, he, he came off the back of Jahangir. He ended the run of the, 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 the sort of Jahangir Khan domination. Yeah. He then was dealing with the likes of the Dipmars, the Rodney Ma. I know Rodney Martin had a good record over Janshir, but for the most part, you know, that, that era, which we talk about the golden generation, you know, your Dittmars, your, your Martins, your, your Robertsons, um, and so on and so forth. Janshid seemed to handle them with relative ease, really. And the amount of events that he won with the players that were around at the time, for me, is what kind of stands him out from the players of that, that generation. Then comes along somebody like Rami, who's, who nobody has ever played the game the way he does. Absolutely, he's a complete, you know, it's phenomenal what, it's what he can do with the squash ball, and yeah, complete for it. And even at times, you know, Joey and I will be sitting there commentating, and you can't even explain what he's just done with the ball because it, it's something that you've never even seen before. Um, it, it's just tragic that his body hasn't managed to hold up the way. If I mean, if he'd have been 100 percent fit oh, yeah. through the entirety of his career. He would have been. He he would have dominated. He went on that run a few years back, Rami, of the fifty-five matches. I think it was. Everybody was talking about it for a period of time. Yeah. Um, um, where I think it was about a year and a half where he went unbeaten, and I think that that would have continued. They would have started early, and it would have continued longer if he's if he hadn't yeah, had the certainly certainly it looked like there wasn't much. I, I, yeah. Sorry, Pete. No, Sorry, I, was, I was just going to say, no, no problem. I was just going to say that I, I just feel, though, even that with that said and done, Janshir had the ability to kind of reduce and limit his opponents to hitting into certain areas of the court and, and physically, and that's maybe something we'll talk about in a minute, but physically, if you look at how strong and, and kind of endurance-based the players were of that era, he eventually would have got Rami too tired. I, I remember recently I Shibagi and Rami played Shibagi and Rami played I think in the US Open and it was 31 minute first game and it was one of the most ridiculous first games I've, I've ever seen and after it and this was the first time I've actually seen this in Rami but Rami was blowing. Now Janshi would have subjected Rami to three games of that and I just personally yeah. personally don't feel that Rami could have sustained it for long enough because Janshi's movement abilities were the best of all time. Absolutely. So, uh, it would have been an absolute epic at their best, but I just feel that Janshi would have had the edge. I mean, uh, I mean watching, uh, when I, when I, what I remember, obviously, from, uh, from Janshi is his movement and uh, also yeah. something that I think that goes uh, un, sort of unseen sometimes, his uh, offensive uh, abilities. I mean, he, he could hit straight, that straight volley, drop off the backhand service return straight into the yep. court uh so tight but, to the ball but, 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 but again this is this is this Incredible. is what was so impressive about 
this was so impressive about Jancha, how he evolved his game. Because when he first came onto the tour, I remember watching him play Jan- Jahangir Khan in the semi or the final of the British Open, I think 1990, maybe. He, he looked literally, I don't know, like 120 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> he, he was so skinny. And his coat, his T-shirt used to hang off of him like a, like a coat hanger. <laughs> and all, all, all he seemed to do was run and pick the ball up, run and pick the ball up. But then, as you say, he developed his game because the likes of, Rodney Martin, Chris Dittmar, they were very dynamic and attacking into the front of the court. So Jancic had to adapt his game, not only with his movement, but then he had to match them and had the ability to put the ball away as well. Um, and that was, for me, what uh, you know, took one of the many reasons that took him to the heights that it did. But, you know, for not absolutely phenomenal player. I, I was lucky enough, or unlucky enough, depends what way you look at it, to play Jancic four times. Oh, great. And Brilliant. I got absolute. I got absolutely battered four times. Yeah. <laughs> I, I very, I never felt so inferior on the squash court. It yeah. was, uh, it was just awesome, awesome, awesome to play against. Well, uh, yeah, he he was incredible. As was, uh, I mean, Rami, incredible as well. Um, yeah, very different. But, yeah. Now, I, I've recently I've had uh, been lucky to have uh, two of the two women on on the podcast. Uh, one, the recently okay. crowned uh, British. Uh, national champion Tessney Evans came on and uh, just recently <laughs> yeah. Sarah Jane uh, Perry been on. The game, yep. uh, the women's game, to me, seems even more competitive right now than the men. I mean, you don't really, you can't really pick who's going to win uh, in a final uh, from the be- at the beginning of the tournament. Would you uh, agree with that? I would agree with that entirely. I think if you look at how the men's game and the women's game have improved... I think the the women's has had a slightly more rapid kind of increase in level. And I feel that one of the main reasons for that is that the way that the ladies have adapted their training and their games to suit the 17-inch tin, the glass court, and the circumstances that they're subjected to now. Um, the girls, are, the, the ladies, are, they're quicker, they're fitter, they're stronger. Um, and as you say, as a neutral you could potentially say that the ladies' game is is more exciting to watch because you're not necessarily seeing the domination by one particular nation. You've got such a variation yeah. through the, the top, top 16, top 20 players in the world now. And on any given day, uh, it, it's wide open who can actually take and claim, claim the titles. Um, it, it's great to see the likes of Sarah Jane Perry coming through. You've got Tesney Evans coming through, challenging the likes of Shabini and uh, yeah, absolutely. Gohar and, and El Walili. So the, I mean, the way I, I that they saw, I just changed, uh, before the interview, I, I went and watched a couple of Sarah Jane's games, and I was real. I, I was kind of I'd never really seen her play before. She's very. Uh, she's a great style of play. Well, I think also what we're seeing a little bit, Jerry, is not only the adaptations with the training methods and, and so on and so forth, but a lot of these girls now are training and playing with guys. So if yeah. you watch somebody like a Renimo Walili play, Sarah Jane Perry, Tesney Evans, you know, they, they're starting to hold the ball. They're stopping their players' movements. They're, in, they're in, injecting pace into their movements into the front of the court. A lot of the things they're seeing and witnessing through their training with the male players, you know, now that the tours are becoming much more entwined, yeah. I think you're getting a, a big crossover and, and, and that's really aiding and helping the ladies. Uh, and you're seeing it in the games. They're, they're becoming so much more exciting now. If you look at the ladies game 10 years ago, it was pretty much a given who the top eight players were going to be through to the semifinals. Right. You're not really seeing that much anymore. It's wide open. And, and with that said, the standards got up ma- massively. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. No, the, I mean the, the that last the Windy City Open. I mean, from the quarterfinals onwards, uh, just about every match was uh, was was incredible. Well, it was awesome. Yeah, it was just a shame that Joel King couldn't get the win uh, yeah. in the in the final. There, she uh, came so she had close. Plenty of chances that, and opportunities. That's Again, it's another the, player that's tomorrow. overcome. Holy moly! How how many five games? Five game matches? Did she uh, pull through? I think I think she saved. I, I think she saved three match balls in the second round. Just yeah. off the top of my head, three match balls in the second round. She was close to defeat in the semis, and then uh, she was match ball down in the in the final. So, yeah. Yeah, full full credit to her. And, uh, another great player who I, I really enjoy watching her play. So, Absolutely, uh, and she's got a male uh, training partner, a uh, pretty good one there. It it certainly helps if your husband's world number four and U.S. Open champion, and you've got that kind of uh, training partner to rely on. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and the. Uh, 
Um, now, Nicole, Nicole Davids, uh, obviously what she's done for the game globally, especially uh, in, the mid, in, uh, in Asia and uh, for women's yeah. squash, it goes without saying. But um, lately, uh, she's still competing well, but uh, uh, not to the standard that, that she expects, uh, obviously. Do you, do you reckon that she might uh, retire at some point in the near future? I, I don't see her retiring any time soon, Jerry, and there's a, a couple of reasons for that. I, I think that, first of all, as you said there, she still is competing with these top, you know, I say top, she is still, she could still regard her as one of the top players. But when you look at the likes of Walili Shabini, who've had a slightly better record against Nicole recently, um, she, she still knows that she belongs up there amongst these players. Unfortunately for Nicole, Maybe she's one of the players who you could say got a little bit affected by the tin dropping to the the under so to the seventeen inch tin, right, right? Because when it was a nineteen inch tin, she's such a, a magnificent mover, wonderful athlete, and she could rely on that to kind of wear and grind the players down. I think if Nicole and she, her passion is still there, you can tell even when you see her around. She still has the, the, I feel, the drive and the desire to want to get better. I think she would love to get back and start beating up on some of those players that have maybe taken some of the limelight away from her. Yeah. And well, for maybe for once, she's she might have a, a bit of a chip on her shoulder. Uh, after having dominated for so long, now she's kind of maybe on her back feet, so to speak, and maybe, uh, maybe we might see her it, uh, come back again. Potentially, I think it'll be it'll be a big test for her, and uh, it certainly won't be through lack of trying. Uh, yeah. It certainly won't be through lack of trying. If we we talk about players, how they've you know Janja, how he adapted and he evolved his game. If if Nicole goes away and works on a couple of aspects on her, and it won't take much. I think she's not a million miles away. There's a couple of things that, that no. I feel that if she can kind of try to utilize a little bit more and and, and work on, she she'll be right back up there. And no, she's not. I think, uh, the matches she's losing look, right in the she's right there it's the uh she's in, she's in the mix she's in the mix and uh, a little bit she gains a little bit of confidence and she figures out at the moment it almost seems as though she's not quite sure how to play against some of some of these you know your shubinis and your the, the egyptian players shall we say and and i think once she figures out a game plan and she can get that implemented uh, and she starts to to beat a couple of these girls along with the confidence she will then, there's no doubt in my mind that she can go right back up to the top. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I was just wondering uh, what you thought about that. Now, uh, just before, uh, before we uh, finish up, uh, PJ, um, Squash TV, uh, just getting back to that, it's, yeah. it's been huge for, for Squash. And uh, just wondering when and, and how did you get involved with the Squash TV? Purely by chance, actually, Jerry. Um, quite funny, as I mentioned earlier in the show, that I first came over to the United States in 2006, and I'd been here for about three years. And I always used to—I played the tournament of champions many times. It was my favourite event as a player, and I was just up the road in Greenwich, Connecticut, at the time when the when the show roared into town on the, in 2009, when Squash TV very first started broadcasting uh, the tournament of champions, and. Joey Barrington, when I, as I mentioned again earlier, that when I was down training with Jonah in 2002, Joey and I actually became very good friends. Um, during that period, Joey then came up and started training in, in Essex with Neil Harvey. And, and I saw a lot of Joey when he was in and around the London area. So anyway, Joey was the lead commentator at the time when the, when the Joey was still playing competitively. So, but as soon as he lost his match, then they would kind of shift him up to the, commentator's booth and he would then start doing some broadcasting so for him it was great because it was a little bit of extra money he was on the downward curve of his playing career so he yeah. he was out pretty early on and then he could make some extra money by doing some of the commentating and I was up there watching and Joey and I were just catching up as, as you do and he said oh we're looking for somebody to to cover the match at 5.15 I think it's John Wyatt playing I can't remember who it was at the time would you be interested in coming in I said uh, a little bit overwhelmed at the time I said well what does it entail and what do I have to do and obviously no uh, no background at all of any kind of commentary work and I said sure I'd love to give it a go so Joey and I went in and from the moment we started I've literally 
fell in love with it. Absolutely. Away. Good crack with Joey able, uh, every time you're on the on the well, program. Well, the, the, the chemistry was, uh, that was off the back of many, many, many years of friendship. But then yeah. to be able to sit there, bearing in mind I retired in 02, you're sitting there seven years later, you know, missing, you, you've missed being at that top flight of the game for so many years. And then all of a sudden there you are, you know, having a chat with you, one of your best buddies about what's going on on the court and the players of today it was it was like a dream come true so I, as soon as the match finished i just said to joey look really enjoyed that joey please keep me keep me posted with any future matches and the producer at the time recognized that there was a bit of a chemistry between joey and i he got me involved for, for more of the matches in the tournament and it just escalated from there we got very good feedback from some of the squash fans that were watching at the time and it's just been there and now it's it's probably I would say the most it's the favorite part of my work absolutely and um, as much as I love coaching and I love working with the kids trying to you know see, see them in them involved I, I travel to events around the world I'm commentating and, and talking about a, a game that I've got a, a massive passion for with, with, a, with one of my best friends. So it doesn't, it doesn't really get much better. No, absolutely. And uh, not only that, I mean, you've got uh, the squash world. I, I think the, the, the whole uh, of the squash community who follow squash just absolutely, uh, they're glued to their squash TV and, and you and Joey and the rapport you have uh, with each other is a <laughs> part of that. Yeah. Uh, but one yeah, thing, uh, it's I was come just, a very long way in the, in the last Sorry. Minute. Yeah. No, I was just going to say it's come a it's come a long way in the, in the last sort of uh, since 2009. So we're talking nine years. I think it was our ninth anniversary. Or two, yeah, was it nine? I think it was our ninth anniversary this year at, uh, at Tournament of Champions. And to see how the camera angles have changed, the uh, you know the slow mo replays, the yeah. the audio, just the the information that the fans can see now that we're, that we're introducing yeah. during the matches. It's yeah. But I it's like giving the, them much more of an insight as to exactly what these players are having to go through. So it's it's fantastic. Yeah, I noticed uh, sometimes on uh, on Facebook or on Twitter, you you elicit uh, ideas from from the squash community in terms of how to uh, to maybe uh, push the envelope a little bit more on squash TV. Have you had any uh, good suggestions uh, lately? And and what's maybe something uh, that's coming up that might be uh, something we can look forward to? Um, I mean, I'd love to give you some some behind the scenes dish, Jerry. But at the moment, I mean, rest assured, the, the the entire crew, the PSA crew, the Squash TV crew, are doing their utmost to bring the the best information and the most advanced in information we can, given the budget that we have. Yeah. And what I, what I really what I noticed problems. in the last at the last uh, tournament, I think it was the Windy City. You had the heart rate monitor, which was pretty cool. Brilliant. Fantastic. I mean, that's the kind of, I don't know if you watched the world championships in December, but we were talking about the amount of time that the ball is actually live and in play during a rally. Now, when yeah. you compare it to some other sports like tennis, I think Shibagi was playing, might've been his brother. And in the first game, the ball was actually live and, and, uh, and active 76% of the time in that first game. Now that is unheard of in any other sports wow, because yeah. you have so many stoppages and, and stops. It, it, the more information that the public see, the, yeah. hopefully the greater their appreciation will be for just how athletic and fit these guys really are because they're just certain, they're just never given enough credit in my opinion. It's, not only, it's, not only that, they, it's, they, going to, it's going to enhance the, the quality of, uh, of everyone's game because they're going to see these, uh, these analytics and go out there and tweak their training. It's, it's an ever-evolving thing. You're 100% right. Uh, yeah. there's, there's some stats, I think, that have come out of the Grasshopper Cup, which is actually on at the moment, where you can see the court coverage of players and where they're spending the majority of their time throughout the course of a game. So, yeah. again, you know, training programs will adapt. Players will improve working on... It's becoming a lot more specific and a lot more kind of intricate, the, de the details are becoming finer and, and the level, the standard will only recre uh, increase and, 
and benefit off the back of that kind of stuff. If we had more money, then then we could bring you so much more. There's there's so many ideas and things that yeah. people, some some great ideas that are coming in from the public, and that's why we throw it out there because we love feedback. We love to hear what people think and what they've got to say, and and we we, we try and help in any way we can. Uh, if we had the money, then then there would be a lot more facilities uh, available. But at the moment, within the the parameters that we've got, for me, the product is. It's doing a really, really good job at the moment. Absolutely. Uh, it, it will get better. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy the. You get a lot of feedback from the, the squash stories, guys, on Facebook. <laughs> we do. We're, we're, we're actually. We're, we're personal they, they've friends sparked a bit of, of controversy uh, last uh, week uh, <laughs> with the uh, International Women's Day uh, posts. Uh, well, listen. You know what it's like. It's uh, you, you do trust me. You do get a few keyboard warriors out there who you can't please everybody. We fully understand and appreciate that. And there are plenty of people that that want to knock you and, and put you down. But for the most part, a lot of the guys on Squash Stories are, are brilliant. And that's oh, why are. myself, uh, jo jo Joey, and myself, and, and Lee Drew. We every now and again we like to get involved. We like to interact. We want those guys to feel part of part of the game because yeah. without well, those guys, I mean, um, then, one, then one Squash thing, uh, TV wouldn't be around. I think squash stories uh, on Facebook, anyways, it's fantastic because we, I, I take part in it. We go in there, we we talk about matches, we talk about referees' decisions, who, uh, what we feel, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. it's a place. It's a it's a real sort of a dynamic uh, squash uh, uh, discussion there. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, freedom of speech. People can go in there and they can say, you know, what they want, and some of the points are valid, and some certainly aren't. But they, you know, it's all part and parcel of. <laughs> Of, of the of the the, the the Facebook page, it's, it's we love it. It's it's fantastic. We we the more interaction, as I said, that we can get with with the fans, the, the better it is for us. And, for sure. Um, it's, sure. It's, it's, and it's evolving all the time. It's growing all the the numbers in the squash stories field are, are all continually rising. So it's brilliant. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to comment uh, just quickly. I know in a lot of uh, in in American sports, anyways, there was this. Uh, the father-son uh, commentary. Uh, uh, there was Jack Buck, who used to do a lot of the, the American uh, baseball, and uh, he's now yep. been uh, succeeded by his son Joe Buck, who does the baseball. Now, back uh, when I was, I lived in Asia for a few years, and back then when you were playing, uh, Jonah did quite a few of the. Uh, it was on Star Sports, maybe Sky Sports, but he did a lot of the, the commentary, and he was absolutely fantastic as a commentator. Uh, he had these expressions that I'd never heard of because I'm not I'm not from your part of the world, but uh, things like uh, <laughs> it's a it was a veritable purple patch that that was one. Uh, There's nothing in and uh, uh, the, uh, the fertile wrist and in the ascendancy yep. and the tempestuous uh, Canadian. These these are all sort of ones that stick out <laughs> in my mind. Uh, now, that, now, that we've come to, uh, now Joey's around and there's an entirely new uh, vernacular. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you've you've got a few of your own uh, uh, new generation analogies. Uh, yes. Yep. One of them is uh, uh, I mean, a scandal. I, I'd never heard that one before. <laughs> <laughs> well, jo Joey certainly has brought his own vocab to the, uh, the the squash commentary world. That's for sure. And and he's absolutely brilliant. Joey, Joey's, he, for me, he's the best in the business right now. And he's taken on a lot of his father's traits. That's the advantage of, uh, of a very good education. Jonah was so articulate, so well-spoken. And as you say, some of the phrases that you mentioned there, the tempestuous Canadian, he's obviously only referring to Jonathan Powell there, but <laughs> he, 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 was, he was pure genius, pure, pure class. And even now when, and I'm so surprised that Jonah's not more involved because he's still, even at the age of I don't know, 73, 74, whatever he is, has so much to offer. He, he still watches every single men's and women's match, believe it or not. And he's really? avidly following the game. But, uh, he's he's not utilised, which to me is a tremendous it's a tremendous shame uh, and a huge waste. But with that said, J Joey again, he's a very bright boy and he brings a, a wonderful um, angle into the commentary yeah. and all these kind of squash uh, phrases that that you're starting to hear about from him. Uh, it, you, we're now starting. To, I start to hear them amongst the kids. I've heard them in the schools, in the universities of the of the, of the teams that are playing. 
So it's certainly, the word is certainly getting around and it, it makes it fun. It makes it interesting and it's That's all uh, extremely lighthearted. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's good. Uh, just one, one more thing about Jonah. I mean, uh, you got, there was a legend of, of his uh, ghosting uh, techniques and, and what, how he would do his ghosting, where, we, where he would do it and uh, what he would wear. Uh, <laughs> something about uh, him doing uh, ghosting in, in nut crunchers. What, what, what are nut? I think I know what a nut crunch is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, won't, I, I won't give you specific details as to what nut crunches are, but we'll just say that they're um, I know uh, they underwear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the, again, reverting back to the, the 2002 story, when I went down to see Jonah, in, it was uh, the Commonwealth Games, I think, were in June or July, I can't remember. I, I was down there in late May, very, very warm. And Jonah said, right, called Joey and I over, said, right, you boys go and get changed. We're going to be doing some ghosting in the garden. <laughs> and I'd never even heard of ghosting in the garden in my life. And I, I looked at Joey and the Browning and he said, Yeah, no, we're gonna go and do some ghosting in the garden, go and get changed. So so I went in, I put on my full squash kit, I've got my t shirt on, my shorts, literally uh, wristbands. I'm I'm ready to go. I've come out into the garden. Jonah's got his shoes and socks on and then literally a pair of underpants. It's eighty degrees outside. We're in the garden, Joe's got Jonah's got his underpants on. And I, I just thought this was some kind of joke or some sort of wind up. Jonah then proceeds to walk to the middle of the garden, he he maps out a squash court, he puts down um, some cones, which are the rough sort of uh, diameter or the, the rough measurements of a squash court. Uh, there was a towel um, that he laid out, and then there were two more cones that we would run in between. So it became it was a thirty-minute continual uh, session where there was one minute of ghost. There was one minute of ghosting. Um, um, in it's kind of in the made out court then the, whilst that was happening it's kind of Jonah would be doing the ghosting I would be then doing sprints in between the two cones and Joey would be doing the sit ups and the crunches on the towel okay. once the minute was up it was then a, a quick rotation amongst the three stations and this then went on but, I mean people were people there was a, they live in Glastonbury which is near the tour which is a very famous uh, sightseeing and that their garden's very open. And at one stage, people were literally peering across into the garden, watching us three absolute nutcases running around the garden with Jonah in his underpants. It was, Sounds like it was one of those funny. Monty Python skits. It, it, was, it wasn't far off. We did, I did feel extremely ridiculous, but, uh, but it, it was, you know. But if, again, Jonah, these, if Jonah tells these, you these uh, that's what you got to do, then that's what you got to do, right? 100%. You never even questioned it. You just did as you were told. Absolutely. So it's fantastic. fantastic. Well, uh, well, PJ, uh, you've been very generous uh, with your time. I just want to say uh, uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Uh, it was fantastic. Uh, I could ask you, uh, we, I could talk to you for hours about squash. Uh, but uh, again, uh, great work with, uh, with uh, Squash TV and uh, all the best uh, with the events coming up and going forward uh, in that regard. Uh, I hope the guys out there enjoy listening. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, PJ. Have a great day. Cheers, Jerry. All Cheers. the best. Well, PJ, that was uh, doesn't get much better than that. Thank you so much uh, for coming on to the podcast. Some great stuff there, including uh, the backstory of PJ's uh, incredible career, British national champion, as I mentioned, and uh, coming so close to reaching world number one. I gave it to him in in his introduction just to uh you know give it to him because he definitely deserved it. He had so many close calls over the years uh and that uh, fantastic ending uh about uh, Jonah Barrington's great ghosting uh techniques and uh training sessions with uh, Joey and, and Paul in the backyard was fantastic um, now just uh just to follow up on my introduction earlier at the beginning of the podcast, uh, I just have a few thoughts on uh, the Rami and, and Mohamed uh, El Sherbagi match. Uh, of course, you know, Rami at his best is the best, but uh, I think we ought to pump the brakes here before, uh, you know, before we get carried away. It's one tournament. Uh, Rami was firing on all cylinders. He's obviously uh, fit again. But um, we can't forget how how much squash Mohammed's been playing over the past few months. Uh, 
he might have been tired. Uh, he certainly the back on the on the wrong end of a lot of those rallies. Uh, he didn't seem to have as much energy as he normally has, although that had a lot to do with Rami uh, playing so well. But um, let's just see how how uh, long Rami can keep this up, and if he can keep this squash up for the next uh, couple of months, then um, then we're going to see a new number one in the name of uh, Rami Ashour. But uh, I think it's a bit too early to start uh, saying that he's back because he's going to have to do this uh, consistently over the next five, six tournaments uh, in order to, uh, to show that his body is going to be able to, uh, to take uh, a lot of uh, high-level squash continuously. I mean, uh, his first round was fairly straightforward. Then he ran into um, Gregory Galche, who also coming off of injury and wasn't at his best uh, and definitely needed to be at his best to compete with Rami, but wasn't at his best. And um, and then the final. So he was relatively fresh compared to Mohammed, who had who's come off a, a series of final appearances in all of the tournaments that he's participated in. Might be uh, a little bit um, burnt out after all that squash uh, and all the time spent on court. So... Um, I think we we just uh, want to see how things play out here. Uh, Mohammed will have his chip on his shoulder the next time, and uh, Rami will uh, want to uh, build on this and get back to number one. So exciting times uh, in the world of uh, the men's side of professional squash. Anyways, uh, episode 15 again. Thank you, PJ. We've got uh, a couple of more great episodes coming up, uh, so stay tuned for those. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye for now.